Before we start this week's episode, a quick heads up for listeners. I am thrilled to let you know that in the coming weeks, we're going to be adding a regular third host to the show, RFF Senior Fellow Margaret Walls. So be on the lookout and be ready for some fantastic conversations between Margaret and her guests. Okay, now on to the show. Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Billy Pizer, RFF's Vice President for Research and Policy Engagement, about getting to a resilient net zero economy. We decided to have this conversation in the run-up to RFF's Net Zero Summit, which is bringing together a broad group of experts and leaders to discuss where we need to go to achieve these goals and how we can get there equitably. Billy and I will talk about the suite of existing net zero goals and pledges, whether we are on track to achieving them, and how recent federal policy moves us closer to those goals. We also talk about barriers to achieving a net zero future, including the potential tension between reducing emissions deeply and reducing them quickly. Today's conversation will also appear in edited format in our latest edition of Resources Magazine. Stay with us. Billy Pizer, Vice President of Research and Policy Engagement at RFF. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, Billy, we're going to talk about some pretty big questions today, and the the purpose of talking about these big questions is uh, RFF is hosting what we're calling a Net Zero Economy Summit in October of 2022. So before we talk about the, the big questions involved in Net Zero and the economy, I think it might be helpful to just kind of define a term that we're going to be using, which is a Net Zero Resilient Economy. So when you think about Net Zero and Resilience, in an economic context, uh, how do you define that? Well, sure. I mean, first we should unpack the the net zero, right? The idea is that we're not going to reduce our necessarily our use of fossil fuels or our emissions of carbon dioxide uh, to zero exactly. What we're going to do is reduce them a lot of the way, but there may be some sectors, aviation, some industrial sectors where it's not easy to get that last little bit of fossil fuel out of the system. And so therefore we'll be using some sort of negative emission technology or options uh, to compensate for what's left over for the positive emissions that remain. The resilient part is recognizing that even if we manage to achieve net zero by 2050, which is the general timeline that's talked about, there's still going to be pretty significant climate impacts. I mean, we're already seeing wildfires and droughts and flooding. Um, those sorts of things are going to be happening. And so we're still going to have to build into the economy uh, resilience and adaptation in order to manage those impacts. So when we said net zero resilient economy, it's kind of combining all those things into one vision of the future of the economy. That's great. So, um, you know, one route to achieve the net zero economy is, of course, uh, actions or not one route, but multiple routes are available to achieve this net zero resilient economy. And many private organizations, corporations, and governments have announced targets and timelines to achieve net zero emissions in recent years. Some of those targets and timelines are on the order of zero by 2050, maybe earlier, maybe later. Can you give us a few examples of these targets, some that you think are particularly important? And 
highlight for us what they indicate about our collective ability to reach net zero economy wide? Well, at the highest level, you have commitments that governments are making in the form of their nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement, which is one of the pieces of the international negotiations that occur every year. Um, this year, they'll be in Egypt. Um, so, for example, the United States has a goal of around 50% reductions from its 2005 level um, by 2030. So, you know, that sort of a target is consistent with ultimately trying to get to zero by 2050 and establishes kind of a point along the way so we can measure progress. Um, you know, if you add up all of the commitments that countries have pledged under the Paris Agreement, they still probably are not enough to get to zero by 2050. Um, but they kind of give you a starting point for that sort of calculation. If you drill down further, uh, as you've kind of noted, different states, different companies, um, all sorts of actors. Duke University, when, when we were at Duke University, um, had goals in terms of reducing emissions or net emissions to a particular level by a particular date. So it's, it's those sorts of things that um, push us along the route towards net zero for the whole world by 2050. Um, but it is actually a bit of a chore to add them up. I mean, the national level targets can be added up, but when you have all these different pieces throughout the economy, you can be worried about some people double counting, you know, the missions that somebody else is doing and vice versa. Um, so it does become a bit more of a chore. Yeah. Do you have like a gut sense as to whether when you do start to combine those private and public sector actions, like how close are we to achieving either the 1.5 or 2 degree goal? Obviously, the, the trajectory of, of the emissions matters a lot. But when you just kind of think big picture, like, do you think we're 50% of the way there, 75% of the way there? Or is that an unfair question? It's a fair question. There are a lot of different ways to answer it. I mean, I, I think if you were to add up all of the international commitments that have been made, as I mentioned, under the Paris Agreement, uh, you would be falling quite a bit short. It's also a little bit hard to know. I, maybe it is a little bit unfair because most of those sorts of commitments are only through 2030. People haven't necessarily talked about what they're going to do over 2050 timeline. But there is this process uh, in the negotiations called the global stock take that is attempting to kind of square this and do this sort of calculation. That'll actually come out next year. But I, I think that most of the folks who've looked at this, you know, are assessing that, you know, we're not really on track to get to net zero by 2050 exactly. Um, it's still within striking distance, perhaps, but it's certainly not, uh, it's not where the current policies and, and even the commitments are necessarily headed. Uh, another relevant benchmark, maybe more immediate and, and tangible is you know, the United States, I mentioned, has this goal of about a 50% reduction by 2030. And with the passage of the recent Inflation Reduction Act, um, that uh, target really is much closer to being within grasp. I think originally the projections were that we were going to hit about 30% below 2005 levels. Uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act, it's closer to 40%. So, you know, we're really getting, you know, much closer to what the goal looks like. Yeah, right. And I want to ask you more about the Inflation Reduction Act, or maybe we'll call it the IRA or IRA. I'm still, I still can't decide whether I want to call it the IRA or IRA. What do you think? 
I've been calling it the IRA, but now that you mention it, maybe we should call it IRA. I don't know any IRAs, so maybe that would be a nice, nice name. Yeah. In any case, one uh, resource as people wait for the global stock take to come out that I use often is the Climate Action Tracker, which provides regular updates on kind of where these nationally determined contributions are getting us. And so that might be a useful um, benchmark as well for people to take a look at. So let's talk about IRA uh, for a second. So it was passed in August of this year. Most experts consider it the most substantial piece of climate policy that's ever been passed at the federal level in the U.S. So can you talk a little bit more about what IRA does, uh, as well as other recent legislation like the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the CHIPS Act and other recent policies? Like, how much do they bend the curve and, and where are those bends in the economy occurring? Is it the power sector, transportation sector, elsewhere? Right. Well, uh, the IRA or IRA, as we were going to call it, um, certainly is the most significant piece of legislation, I think, to combat climate change that we've ever passed at the federal level, um, just in terms of the scope of what it's doing. I mean, you, you mentioned the CHIPS Act and um, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. Um, both of those provided a lot of underpinnings, I guess you would call them, uh, you know, the infrastructure bill was, you know, focused, for example, on transmission uh, infrastructure for the electricity sector um, that had a number of other uh, smaller incentives in it. Um, you know, the CHIPS Act was oriented around industry manufacturing, um, but none of those were really projected alone to have a sizable emissions consequence. Um, it was really coming from um, the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, in terms of where it has the biggest hit, um, you know, the majority of the emission reductions in IRA are coming in the power sector, um, which is not surprising because that's probably in many ways the most um, amenable sector to near-term emission reductions. There are known technologies. They work. They're not that expensive. We kind of know what we're doing, and we just have to do more of it. We have to provide the financial incentives for the power companies um, and investors to build more uh, wind and solar, as well as to, you know, maintain the nuclear fleet and things like that. So, you know, that's probably, uh, I, I don't know if I've actually done the numbers exactly in my head, but it's certainly the majority. Um, another thing that the IRA does is it provides uh, incentives for households to make investments in, um, you know, higher efficiency equipment in, the, in their household. Um, with respect to um, heating and cooling and, and uh, water heating and things like that. It provides incentives for them to adopt electric vehicles. Um, you know, those sorts of things uh, in, in buildings and transportation uh, are other chunks um, of the reductions under IRA. Um, and then there are incentives for industry to improve uh, their production techniques and uh, reduce their emissions. Um, <clears throat> there's also money to encourage uh, advanced technologies. Um, there's a lot of interest in direct air capture. As I mentioned, in order to get to net zero, you need to not just, you're not just getting all your emissions to zero, you're going to have some emissions left over and you need to actually um, have a negative emission technologies and direct air capture or DAC is kind of a leading uh, way people want to do this, but it's very expensive right now. Um, so uh, the IRA um, is going to provide a lot of additional incentives for that and hopefully move that along so that by the time we really need it at scale, it's, it's much more, it's much more ready to go. Right. 
Yeah, interesting. And, and certainly some of those technologies, when you think about the modeling and where they project us to be, some of those technologies are kind of easier to model because we have more experience with them. And then others, the more nascent technologies, I think the uncertainty bounds around like how much DAC are we actually going to see deployed? How much advanced nuclear? You know, what's the scale of hydrogen? It seems to me like the modeling around that is is far less certain. And so we could get more or less uh, reductions than we might anticipate, uh, given the models that are out there from, you know, RFF and Rhodium Group in Princeton and elsewhere. Sure. No, I think that's totally the case. I mean, I, I think when you're thinking about what's going to happen by 2030, um, you know, which is only, you know, it's like seven or eight years away. <laughs> uh, I, you know, the, the modeling there is not depending on new technologies. And that's why most of it is coming in the power sector, uh, as I mentioned, where, you know, we have existing technologies uh, that we can deploy. I think the projections as you go past 2030, um, that's where it really gets, uh, you know, more challenging because yeah you are going to depend on these technologies that haven't been commercialized yet um and you know we don't know that we can bring down the costs as much as we might project although you know history suggests that when you put a lot of money and you provide a lot of incentives people do figure out better ways of doing things you know i would also mention the you know the ira is, is providing a lot of incentives for all this to happen it's it's all carrots it's not really a lot of sticks uh, i guess there's you know one one element of fee on methane, which might be the only stick in the entire uh, IRA. But, and, and so what that means is it's kind of hinging on those incentives to actually work. It's not like we've capped emissions or we've regulated the power sector to do these reductions. We're just providing all these carrots. Um, and there has been, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, worry that um, without things like additional transmission capacity and, you know, other reforms and, and steps that would make um, all of the tasks that we want to subsidize, uh, you know, doable. Um, there's a lot of assumptions that we'll find ways around some of those barriers that have existed in the past. So um, I'm not saying it's optimistic, but I would just say, you know, even achieving the 40% by 2030 that most of these groups are projecting, there's still uncertainty about that because it's not clear that all of those obstacles are going to be cleared. Of course, things could get better and maybe even do more than 40%, but, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You just mentioned the two things that I wanted to ask you about next specifically. So so I'd love for you to say a little bit more about those two issues. First is this uh, topic of carrots, right? So the uh, IRA is mostly subsidies. It's in the form of tax credits and some additional loan authority for the Department of Energy's loan program office. It's all to encourage the deployment of new clean energy in the U.S. It's to encourage companies to source their clean energy materials domestically. Um, you know, you've thought a lot about the pros and cons of using subsidies to try to achieve these goals. In fact, you and me and uh, our boss, Richard Newell, uh, we published a paper on this just a couple of years ago. So in your view, what are some of the biggest pros and cons of taking this incentive-based approach? Well, the, the biggest con, uh, you know, coming from a background in economics, I mean, the thing you worry about with subsidies is that, um, you know, they're, they require government revenue in order to, in, in order to be operationalized. Um, so you have to, um, you know, either add new revenue or spend revenue that you have on this as opposed to other things. Um, and so that increases, you know, the societal cost of these policies. But of course, that's only relative to something like a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme that may not be 
um, possible or may have other side effects that we don't like, like distributional consequences. I mean, the nice thing about subsidies is they don't burden the people who are receiving them. They actually reward them, right? Um, so we can kind of lean on our tax system to make decisions about how equitable the outcome is. And actually, as you were mentioning, you know, or maybe not mentioning, but alluding to, you know, even within the IRA, there are things like uh, income caps on the subsidies that households can collect. Um, so there's been a lot of attention in, in the IRA, I think, to distributional issues in a way that maybe in the past has not been quite so front and center. Um, another thing you mentioned uh, was kind of these domestic sourcing requirements and many of the incentives that are provided. Uh, and certainly that, you know, tackles another issue that's been uh, at the root of some of the challenges in past uh, policy efforts, which is just recognizing that, you know, as we create all these uh, incentives for new clean energy and new technologies, um, there's a strong interest in seeing that these industries and these jobs go to Americans and that we're not subsidizing and um, incentivizing technologies that are really being supplied by economic competitors, um, you know, perhaps with unequal policies in those countries uh, to boot. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things that are rolled up into um, IRA that are, you know, beyond just reducing emissions. And, you know, when we wrote that papers a few years ago, we were really, at least in my mind, we were really focused on, you know, what are the consequences of different subsidy designs, you know, when your main purpose is to get emission reductions or to get clean energy outcomes or whatever it is. And I think the IRA was really thinking about a lot of different dimensions, not just the uh, the emissions outcome. Right, for sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious about your take on one level deeper on that question, which is about, you know, sourcing domestic supply chains, building these things domestically. Have you looked into this question of like whether we kind of have the material basis and kind of manufacturing capacity to actually achieve some of these supply chain goals that are articulated in the bill? Well, this is certainly a question that has come up. Um, and I think especially on incentives around electric vehicles, that's the place where I've seen uh, quite a bit of ink spilt about whether or not uh, what fraction of the electric vehicles that are available will be, um, you know, will actually be eligible for the, the subsidies um, because of the, the lack of domestic content or domestic manufacturing. Um, so I think it's a real question <laughs> exactly how much is going to get deployed uh, under these subsidies, given the, the current domestic limits, it does at the same time create exactly the incentive that I think lawmakers wanted, which is to drive the manufacturing to the United States. So I think what you know remains to be seen is exactly how quickly and effectively that capacity can be scaled up. But it, it certainly does it does put the incentive there. Right. Yeah. Our colleague Bea Spiller wrote a piece about this on the um, Common Resources blog, which, um, of course, we'd encourage people to check out. Um, you know, another question that you've alluded to a couple times is uh, these issues of roadblocks, whether it's domestic supply change or citing, you know, new infrastructure like transmission lines. Can you talk a little bit more about what you see as the potential, you know, largest roadblocks, how significant you think they might be? And then also, like, are there research activities that nerds like us should be doing to try to inform decision making so that we can overcome those roadblocks? Well, I mean, we've already talked a bit about the um, the sourcing issues on on electric vehicles. I think 
the other one that comes to mind that I've already mentioned is, um, you know, siting of electricity infrastructure in particular, um, transmission lines, uh, and actual, um, you know, the generation equipment itself. And, you know, this has been an issue for decades. Uh, it's, it's probably the reason why when Manchin agreed to vote for the IRA, he was talking about linking it to permitting reform at the same time. Um, you know, these are just really thorny issues, uh, tying up state rights and, and federal authority, you know, particular in transmission lines or transmission lines to move renewable resources to load centers typically are going to have to cross multiple states um, at the scale we want to deploy the renewables at. Um, and traditionally, all these states have, you know, quite a bit of ability to, uh, you know, to reject the, the plans if they don't see a benefit for their own customers. So, you know, I think what the infrastructure bill, um, you know, as well as the IRA is trying to do is providing more opportunities for streamlined processes and uh, corridors that would um, provide that sort of transmission. But, you know, all that's going to require steps by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the FERC, um, and that's going to have to go through a process of itself. And so it's it's those sorts of steps that I think researchers should definitely be thinking about. It's not necessarily economists. Um, I think it's people thinking about, you know, the way you manage the process, the way you... Uh, recognize the different interests of competing stakeholders and come up with solutions that, uh, you know, try to spread the benefits as widely as possible or, or not widely as possible, but to the people that really, you know, otherwise would not be benefiting and, and, you know, stand in the way. So I think thinking through those issues, um, and doing research to help the FERC, uh, manage the responsibilities it has is going to be really important over the next couple of years. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, to that point of, uh, affected communities and affected stakeholders, you know, some folks, especially, uh, uh, advocates in the environmental justice space are pretty skeptical about the term net zero because they don't like the word net. Uh, it implies, as you've already said, uh, continued positive emissions from fossil fuels and perhaps industrial activities. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the potential uh, tension and how and whether we can resolve that tension between trying to reduce emissions rapidly and reducing emissions in a way that is equitable and addresses the you know considerable environmental injustices of today? Well, I think you're pointing to, um, I'm glad you're doing this, you're pointing to a really important issue that um, folks at RFF, I think, are actually very well positioned to, to speak to. Um, and that is to think about the equity and distributional consequences of, of different choices, um, whether it's power lines connecting different uh, resources and load centers and how that affects electricity prices um, and, you know, the cost and benefits to different customers and companies, but also the siting of these particular technologies, as you were mentioning, um, and what that does to the pattern of pollution and harms that come to different communities that are downwind or beyond the fence line of these different types of facilities. So I think that at some level, a very fundamental step is building the capacity to model the consequences in ways that are relevant for these different communities. I think in the past, there's been a lot of emphasis in the economic community, at least, 
on aggregate costs and benefits and, you know, do the benefits outweigh the costs? Um, I think what you're pointing to, you know, at, at at least a very basic level is a much finer grain detail of who the winners and losers are and not just what the aggregate consequences look like. And I think, uh, people at resources for the future and, and folks who have similar kind of modeling capacity and analytical capacity and, and data analysis capacity can kind of crunch the numbers and provide more, uh, you know, more compelling evidence to, to answer some of these questions. But I do think this is only part of the story. Um, and certainly work that, that you've been involved in, I think, you know, goes to this, which is that the, these communities have to be involved in the conversations and, it's not just a question of, of you know, organizations on high <laughs> um, in Washington, D.C. doing analysis and handing them to these different communities. The communities have to feel like they're part of the process, that, they've, that their concerns have been uh, thought about and, and addressed to some extent, that the ideas that they have are compared to the ideas that other people are have, have and are analyzed by, by trusted sources. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, we all have to, you know, face the fact that we're all going to be burdened by climate change and we're all going to have to be part of the solution. But I think we can all agree that, you know, having the best information possible about who actually sees those costs and benefits is really the only way you can have anything like a, an equitable outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I really like how you pointed to the importance of process and procedural justice in making these decisions. And, you know, that's from my perspective, that's where you start to run into a potential tension because the, the time and effort that's involved in going through the, the processes that, you know, can lead to an equitable outcome, you know, those can take years uh, to, to deal with for even a single project. And so it has the potential to, you know, um, to just be in, in tension with uh, the need to reduce emissions as quickly as I think we want to. Yeah, you, you raise a great point. And I think, you know, we're unfortunately at a moment in time where uh, time is not on our side. <laughs> um, and, you know, the consequences of climate change are, are already palpable and, and really adversely affecting a lot of communities um, and, and already affecting already marginalized communities. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about the, the floods in, in the Appalachian Mountains not too long ago. Um, and so it's, it's, I don't think we're going to be able to do everything that everybody wants us to do in a sense. I mean, we're not going to be able to mitigate emissions fast enough and we're not going to be able to do um, all the justice uh, attempts that the communities want us to do. But we have to do better than we have been doing. And um, I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of scope for improvement. Um, and I think we can, you know, demonstrate intent and, and effort, even as we, you know, admit that we just have, we have to move ahead with some stuff, even as we haven't solved all these problems. Um, so I think it's, it's, as you mentioned, it's going to be intention. Uh, there's going to have to be efforts at balance that are not going to really satisfy everybody, if not anybody <laughs> at every moment in time. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not an excuse for inaction. So I, I think it just means we have to move along and do the best that we can. It's almost like we should have said not just net zero resilient, but net zero resilient equitable economy, because I think that what you're pointing to is really the importance of equity in all of this. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, Billy, we're, we're just about at time. So uh, I want to ask you the last question we always ask our guests. I know we've asked you this before, but I know your reading stack 
uh, rotates pretty regularly. So what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you'd recommend to our listeners? <laughs> well, as you know, we actually have a, uh, a book that we're all reading uh, here at RFF um, as part of our little RFF book club, I guess. Um, I think it's called The Last Best Hope. And it's kind of an analysis. I, I've just, I'm about two thirds of the way through. Um, but it's, it's kind of an analysis of, of the, the challenges that are confronting America right now and, um, tries to articulate a, a notion of, of how America is really made up of these different competing groups. It's not Republicans and, and Democrats, but it's like, a, you know, a number of different, um, people with different visions of what America really is and how they, they need to resolve some of those differences in order for us to collectively solve not just climate change, but all the problems that are facing us right now. Um, but I, you know, I think it, it does give us some hope that, that these things can eventually be addressed. So that would, I guess would be my recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. It is a pretty stark look at uh, our society, but also does offer some, some pathways forward. And just so folks know, it's, um, last best hope by George Packer. And, um, you can talk to your friends about it and you can call any of us at RFF and we'll talk to you about it too. Cause we're all reading it. Well, uh, one more time, Billy Pizer from RFF. Thanks so much for coming on the show today and helping us understand what a net zero, resilient and equitable economy might look like. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to resources radio, a podcast from resources for the future or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.